Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Uh, let me go ahead now and open with a word of prayer. And we'll begin. So, Lord, we again thank you for this morning and the opportunity to fellowship and to come together in your name. And we pray that the word of God will be opened up in our hearts and in our minds, that you would make truth known to us, give us wisdom, discernment, and understanding in all things. That, Lord, no matter what opinions we hold to, whether we agree or disagree with this or with that, we would first off maintain unity amongst us as the body of Christ. Secondly, that we would be willing to uh, drop everything to acknowledge you and the truth that is in Christ, and that we would uh, um, just sacrifice it all for, for your sake and for your honor. We thank you now for this time, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. My name is Rob Dowerple, and um, I am going to be picking up now my presentation, if you're just here from, from uh, this morning, is on the handout titled, uh, Jesus and the Call of the Church, Parts 1 and Part 2. And last night I went over the very first page, so today, this morning, I'm going to be over the second page. Let me do a couple things, however, and remind you guys, uh, uh, everyone who was here last night, some of our goals and objectives and where we've come so far, as well as those of you who were not able to make it last night. Let me kind of do the best I can to kind of bring you up to speed as well. Uh, what we have on many of our outline pages is the verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, which says, for as many are the promises of God in Him, referring to Christ, they are yes. A major assumption that we all hold to here is the fact that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well. With that in mind then, what I argued last night a little bit was that the eschaton, the end times, have already begun. And I'll go over that a little bit here more as well. Clint presented last night wonderfully a, little, a good picture, a background for us of how to understand prophecy. Many of us read prophecy as so matter-of-factly, this means that, because that's what, that's what it means. And yet we have the opportunity with the New Testament to see the fulfillment of prophecy. And we begin to realize, hey, wait a second. And even within Old Testament prophecy, we see prophets like Jonah making a prophecy, 40 days Nineveh will be de- destroyed, and it wasn't destroyed. Well, wh- what's going on there? Oh, the people repented. We also talked about, and Clint mentioned as well, that the purpose of prophecy was, first off, to enforce the covenant that God had made with Moses and remind the Israelites of that covenant. And then secondly, a key feature of prophecy was the fact that it's relevant to the people of the day. And and we'll talk about that as we go into the book of Revelation this morning in in my breakout session uh, um, as well, that the writers of the scriptures are concerned about the audience to whom they were addressing. Certainly it has relevance throughout all generations, and it has relevance to us uh, today as well. So, uh, my presentation then last night, if I'm going I'm to glance to this first page here uh, and remind us where we're at and begin with the second page as well. What I pointed out was that we need to understand Jesus' ministry in an eschatological context. Now, eschatological means end times, last things. And what I said is the last days have begun with the coming of Christ. For many of us, we have a worldview perspective that says, oh, it's just the future, it's the future, it's the future. And we go to these passages and we read them, we see the phrase, the last days, and we think they're talking about the future, when in reality they were talking about the present. And I gave many references to support that particular claim. 
But if we begin to understand the Gospels in an eschatological perspective, we begin to realize, oh, now I see why Jesus did that, why it says this, and why that happened. Whereas before we just thought, oh, that's just what happened because it's just a historical reminiscence of what happened. And we fail to see the significance of the fulfillment in Christ from the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and then carrying it on into the present day as well. Now, the title of this particular session was Jesus and the Call of the Church. Because what I want to point out was not only should we see Jesus and the New Testament in an eschatological context, but that means it has an implication and ramifications, or whatever those big words are, for us. It means something to us. Uh, And so that's what we want to get to this morning, both finishing up this presentation, uh, as well as the one that I'll be doing later on this morning as well. All right, so I pointed out then we need to see Jesus in an eschatological context. The Bible uses eschatological or apocalyptic language. It uses end times language, if that helps you, uh, from numerous events in the Gospels. Jesus' teachings, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. That's apocalyptic language. Um, and then, of course, the announcing of the kingdom of God uh, and, and in Christ's coming and the fulfillment of all God's covenant promises. Um, and so I pointed out uh, Roman numeral 2 in the middle of the, of the first page there was, Point A, the repeated phrase throughout the New Testament of the last days, always references the present. Secondly, the present age and the age to come, and that's the graphic that we have back up on the, uh, on the screen as, as well. The New Testament uses the present age to refer to this world, things that are temporal, things that are destined to perish, and the God of this age, and if your translation says world, that's okay, but the Greek says age. The God of this age is Satan. Whereas the age to come has already begun. And we live in this time frame now, inaugurated by Christ, where both are, are, are existing simultaneously. And we'll see this more and more as I, go, uh, as I go further. The age to come is already present because it's been fulfilled by Christ. He reigns from heaven himself now. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We say that, we sing it, we pray it, but I don't think we realize the significance of it. It's not something, oh, you're the king of kings and someday you're going to come back. No, you are the king of kings and lord of lords. And you do indeed reign right now. What we'll look at then is the parousia, the Greek word for coming, referencing the second coming of Christ, is the time where the bottom line, this age ends. It ends at the second coming of Christ and the age to come now lives on. But there's a merging of heaven and earth. And that's what I was trying to get my friend who put this together for me to, to, to picture. So heaven and earth become one. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth. And so we need to realize the significance of, of the redemption. You see, we say that Christ was resurrected, and we think, oh, that means we'll get resurrected too. But when we look at Scripture, and we'll see this a little bit more, that it actually says that the entire creation will be redeemed. So heaven and earth become become one as well. All right, so uh, no, let us see then. The presence of the last days is confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus, and this involves the restoration of the entire uh, creation. So let me uh, pick it up uh, from right there, uh, if, we, if we can as well. So that's the top of this uh, next page as well, Roman numeral 3. The result is that the kingdom of God... I'll leave it there for a second. The result is that the kingdom of God has come to the earth and will ultimately come in the future consummation. In other words, the kingdom of God is both present and yet to come. This is already not yet tension. The kingdom of God is both present and yet to come. So Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, and the answer is, thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Do you realize that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're asking God to bring his kingdom here. God, bring your kingdom to the earth. You see, for most of us, and I think Paul and Clint, and and, uh, we're talking about this as well, we tend to think, oh, this world's going to be burned up, and God's going to create a new one. And what Paul was informing us was, no, this world is going to be destroyed, but it's going to be refashioned. And God's bringing about his, his, His new kingdom on this earth here and now. So we pray that in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. All right, and of course... We end those scriptures with, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. So both, it's both present now, and it's also future coming in, in the future consummation as well. Now, this is the crux of the matter. Roman numeral 4. The key feature of the marriage of heaven and earth is the presence of God among his people. And this is where we really begin to take this now to, what it, to what the significance of all this. The key feature of the marriage of heaven and earth is the presence of God among his people. We call this the Emmanuel principle, right? Remember, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And what we want to see is, if we could think for a second of how the Bible is a big story, not a bunch of isolated books, not a bunch of isolated stories, but all knitting together in one big story. And Paul gave us a little glimpse, and I think he'll go farther here in his breakout session, of how Genesis and Revelation parallel one another. You read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then read Revelation 21 and 22. And what do you see? You see the fulfillment. You see a garden. Guess what you get in Revelation? A garden. I saw the river, the water of life, and the tree of life. The tree of life was in Genesis. You see Genesis and Revelation, it's a fulfillment idea. Well, what's the key feature of the garden that will ultimately find its consummation in in the New Jerusalem? And the answer is, that's where God will dwell. God dwelt among his people. Why did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden? Because they couldn't dwell in the presence of God. As sinful beings, and the tree of life was there. So the whole goal, as we read through the scriptures, with this one story in mind, the big story is very simply as this. Man has lost this intimacy with God because of sin. The presence of God is now divorced from mankind, perhaps not in totality, but in a large measure. The Shekinah glory, we call it, in the Old Testament covenant, right? In the Old Testament temple. And so we go to the book of, of Leviticus, for example, and we see this. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you, and I will walk among you, and be your God, and you shall be my people." I cannot underestimate how significant a promise this is. If you were to do a word study and watch this particular passage, go through the scriptures, because the prophets are constantly referring back to Leviticus 26. Constantly. Now, by the way, how many of you thought on an end time seminar you'd hear Leviticus? But it's essential. It's essential because what we're trying to point out is the New Testament's fulfilling the old. And the key feature of the, of the God's covenant promises is very simply this. I will dwell among you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, we continue on, and we go to the book of, of Ezekiel now. Remember Ezekiel? Clint gave us an idea yesterday. Ezekiel 37, 26-28. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst 
forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, just for a second here, and we can go here later if you want. Don't think of sanctuary as a building. Because we've already pointed out, God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. That runs throughout scriptures, Acts chapter 7, Stephen's speech. So the sanctuary is the presence of God amongst his people. But you notice how Ezekiel is quoting Leviticus, right? He's referencing the Levitical promise. Ezekiel 37 now, let's clarify where this is at. Ezekiel 37 is a prophecy of the restoration of God's people. Ezekiel's one of the captives, right? Ezekiel's one of those taken into exile. He lives in Babylon. And now he's reminding the Israelite people that even though God has allowed you to be taken away because of your sins, God will someday restore you. And this is what it means to be restored. The restoration that Ezekiel's looking at is God dwelling amongst his people. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Now, for many of us, we're really good with this. And the next place that we might go, of course, is the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, this is the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. Verses 3, 4, and then 7, and it says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The fulfillment of all God's promises. This is the Garden of Eden, where God dwelt among his people. That the book of Leviticus is reminding us, God will bring that about, which Ezekiel prophesies, God will fulfill this. And Revelation says, mission accomplished. Now for most of us, we came in thinking, yeah, I I, I understand that, Rob, no problem at all. I can see that because most of us came in with a mindset that the last days, the end times, refers to the future. And we all affirm that Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 are the future, right? But I want you to notice this one carefully. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth who has a lot of problems. And because they came from a very pagan background. And Paul gives that famous passage, most of you know it, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Well, look what Paul does when he goes and quotes in the midst of the same passage. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell within them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I hope you caught it. Paul says the reason why we cannot adulterate ourselves as believers with unbelievers is because we're the temple of God. Well, what's the temple of God? It's the place where God dwells. And therefore, you can't prostitute the temple of God with idols. As Andy was telling us, that's what 666 is all about. But then Paul goes on and he quotes Ezekiel, who's quoting Leviticus. And when he quotes Ezekiel, he's saying, it's fulfilled now. You see, we had no problem with the first three verses. Leviticus, this great covenant promise of God. Ezekiel reminds the people of this great covenant promise of God. Revelation says, fulfilled in the new creation. And Paul says, no, 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 fulfilled now. God dwells among us now. The eschaton has arrived. 
that's the essence of the end times. That's the essence of, of the kingdom of God. God dwelling among his people. So we saw that in the announcement of Jesus. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And though I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So therefore, the significance becomes now that the end times have already arrived. Now what I said at the beginning yesterday, or last night was, that Jesus was announcing the presence of his kingdom both in his coming and in his summons to follow him. And this is where discipleship comes in. So, Roman numeral 5, the, the call to discipleship in an eschatological end times context. You see, if what we're saying is true then, that means that we don't read about prophecy, we don't read about the end times to know the future that may happen. I'm not saying that can't happen. We read about the end times. We read about prophecy to know what are we supposed to do in the meantime? What are we called to do now? If the eschaton has arrived, if it's already present now and it will be fully consummated, then what does it mean for us? Well, the first thing I want us to notice is the Sermon on the Mount. I believe, if we read Matthew's Gospel carefully, and those of you that went through my class on Matthew last term might be more familiar with this here, but let me briefly introduce us to it. We will find Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is his giving us the end times ethics for how the people of God are to live in this new creation that God is already bringing about. All right, let's clarify this. If you read, Gen- if you read Matthew carefully, we'll notice a couple key features here. Let me be brief on these. First off, we're going to notice that Matthew has five sermons in the Gospel of Matthew. They're all very clearly mar- marked by Matthew. The end of each fi- of the five sermons ends with a phrase, um, and after he said these things, Jesus something. A clear way of marking the end of something. There are five of them. Well, we might notice that there are five books of Moses, aren't there? Jesus is being portrayed in the Gospel of Matthew as the new Moses. We might also notice that it's a sermon on the mountain. Because Moses got the law on the mountain. If that's not convincing enough to you, we'll realize, of course, that the Gospel of Matthew has portrayed Jesus as the fulfillment of all God's promises. In chapter 1, the fulfillment of the, of the genealogy. The birth in Bethlehem was a fulfillment of promises. His escape to Egypt was a fulfillment of promises. But you notice what's going on. Israel escaped to Egypt. Israel exits Egypt. Israel's baptized in the Red Sea. Chapter 3, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus after he leaves Egypt. Chapter 4, after he's baptized by John the Baptist, where does Jesus go? Into the wilderness. Because Egypt, Israel, after they left Egypt, they went in the Red Sea and they were baptized. Then they went in the wilderness. Jesus is living out the story of God's covenant people and fulfilling God's covenant promises. After they go through the wilderness, then what happens? Moses goes up on a mountain. Matthew chapter 5, he went up on a mountainside. And after his disciples sat down, he began to teach them, saying, and he gives us the Beatitudes. Now, what do we notice about the Beatitudes? Well, we're going to notice that the Beatitudes, actually, let me go back one step. Deuteronomy chapter 30 says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you both life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Deuteronomy is the covenant, right? This is the law that Moses gives to the people. Choose life in order that you may live. As we go to the Sermon on the Mount, what we'll notice first off is the Beatitudes are framed by references to the kingdom of God. The first beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last beatitude, 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you frame something this way, you're letting everyone know. I want you to read everything in the middle in light of the framing. This whole sermon is to be read and understood in light of the, the announcement of the kingdom of God. These are the ethics for God's people for this kingdom. The sermon then ends with, well, I think, a reference to Deuteronomy 30. And that is, there are two choices. Choose life. Don't choose death. That you may live. There are two gates. You know about that. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. Then we find out that there are two trees. There's a good tree that bears good fruit. There's a bad tree that bears bad fruit. You see, Jesus is telling us, listen guys, I've given you my message. Now you choose what you want to do with it. Choose life, please. Just like Moses said. There are two claims. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then it ends with, there are two houses. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rain came, and the winds blew, and the floods descended and burst against that house, and it, it didn't fall, because it had been founded upon the rock. But the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And it fell, and great was its fall. As Jesus comes into Israel and proclaims the announcement of his kingdom, the answer is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to choose life, or are you going to choose death? All right? Now, the ethics of the kingdom, and we're going to go here throughout the rest of this morning as well. But let me just point out something very simple here at this point in time. First off, they are central to the ethics of the kingdom is the choice between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. So there are two ages. The age to come, Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords of that. And the present age in which Satan is still the God of this world. And choose, which one do you want? Which one are we going to give our allegiance to? The kingdom of God, which is already, remember, D-Day has already been won. We're just waiting for V-Day. Do we want the kingdom of God or do we want the kingdoms of this world? See, John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. For the world and its desires are passing away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. If we begin to understand Jesus' teachings and his ethics in light of these two kingdoms, that both exist simultaneously. One is not purely heavenly and one's earthly. There's a merging of the, of the two, an overlap of the two. So Jesus will say it this way. And he'll say, you cannot serve God and mammon. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Here's your choice. Which one do you want? Mammon is anything that gets in the way of serving God. It's idolatry. It's what Andy said. It's 666 that symbolizes this idolatrous allegiance to something other than God. Now, the ethics of the kingdom are not a list of rules. The ethics of the kingdoms are not a list of rules that we are to obey with an outward appearance, but are indicators of an inner transformation. See, what I hope we take away from this is, first off, not simply, oh, I got a lot of really good information. I learned some things. If that's all we do in the course of last night and this morning, we've wasted our time. We learned something. Great! We need to realize, begin to go, okay, well, what does this mean for us now? How does it affect the way we live now? Well, there's one other thing, though, I want us to understand, and this is where I'll go in my last presentation this morning. And that is, if I simply say, okay, guys, we need to do a better job of being kingdom people. All I've done is given you a greater burden. Oh, I've got to be better. I've got to love neighbors more. I hate that guy, but I've got to love him better. <laughs> because, you know, 
Rob preached it today, and I, and I heard it, you know. I, I can't, you know, I, oh, all those lusts of the flesh. You know, I can't give in to them because that's Satan's domain. And now we put a greater burden on ourselves. So we're going to say, well, well, how do we alleviate that burden then? Well, first thing I want us to step back, though, and go, look, the kingdom of God and the ethics are not rules that we obey with an outward uh, um, uh, appearance, but our inner transformation. Notice what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? This is his kingdom ethics. You heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that anyone who, who is angry with his brother is guilty before the court. What? You heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. I mean, I'm sorry, Jesus. You can't say that, Jesus, and then tell me that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Because he says that, right? We got a problem here, don't we? What's Jesus getting at? He's saying, look, I'm no longer concerned about what you simply do on the outside. I'm glad you're not murdering people, but I'm concerned with your hearts. If your heart has been transformed, then you will not be angry with your brother. And if you're not angry with your brother, you will not murder. I'm here to transform your heart so that we can become ethics and kingdom people. Well, how does this work? Well, real simple. Book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 30. It's an essential chapter. You cannot understand the New Testament without understanding Deuteronomy 27-30. Verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. You see, 13 verses later, he says, choose life, please. Choose life. Excuse me, the book of Deuteronomy says this. Look, you've got two options, people, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to disobey. God's going to send you in exile. God's going to bring you back from exile. And when he brings you back from exile, Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 5, when he brings you back from exile, he's going to set his spirit in your midst, and and his spirit is going to circumcise your hearts. And kingdom people simply are people who, as they mature and grow in Christ, simply aren't angry with their brothers and therefore don't murder. It's not something that we do. It becomes who we are. Because Christ has transformed us as well. But very briefly here, all these are signs of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the famous passage. Jesus quotes this passage at the Last Supper. This is the blood of the new covenant. He's quoting Jeremiah 31. I'll put my laws within your heart, and on your mind I'll write them. 1 Corinthians 10, I referenced this last night. These happen as an example to them, were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore now, because the kingdom of God has come, in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the New, the New Testament people of God are now called to live in the present with kingdom ethics. We are called to live in the presence with kingdom ethics. Two quick verses here. 2 Corinthians 6. Remember, I just quoted that passage. Right? Paul says, don't be unequally yoked because, after all, God's going to live amongst us. And I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Now look what it says in verse 17 and then chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you and you'll be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore... Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
You see, Paul took the fact that the kingdom of God has been established in Christ, the fact that the Spirit resides in our hearts, the fact that God now dwells among us and says, therefore we better now live holy lives. The ethical call is upon us as Christians because the kingdom of God has already come. One of the great chapters in the Bible for most of us is 1 Corinthians 15. It's the resurrection chapter, isn't it? It's Paul's longest discourse on any topic. Unbroken discourse. An entire chapter on the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. And he talks about how he was resurrected and how we know he was resurrected and he appeared to these people and he appeared to those people and they're still alive and if you don't believe it, ask those people. And, then, and if you still don't believe in the resurrection, then, and, 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 then we, we're dead too. And then he goes on to describe our future resurrections. And the very last part of 1 Corinthians 15, of course, says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of, the, of, of, uh, of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. What's that have to do with it? Ah, Paul has understood something. Jesus' resurrection has already begun the new creation. And since we will live this way in eternity, we might as well start living that way now. Be steadfast, immovable. And notice what he says, your labor is not in vain. What we do now actually matters for eternity. Oh, I, I thought I was just like supposed to get saved and like, you know, have Jesus come into my heart and all that good stuff. And then I get to go to heaven when I die. And then in the meantime, I'm just trying to be the best I can be. And Paul says, no, don't try to be the best you can be. Be the best you are. Because what we do actually matters for eternity. So lastly, the kingdom of God is not something wholly future, but it's something already present for which we are uh, for which we are too busy reading our for which we are to be busy reading our Bibles, so that we might be faithful builders of His kingdom. In other words, we're not to be busy reading our newspapers to see the signs of the times and see if we can discern when Jesus might come back. Instead, I'm not saying that's wrong, but instead we are actually to be busy building His kingdom and reading the Word of God. Now, one more step we have to go here, which we'll stop this morning with this presentation. We're going to take it a little bit further. And that's this. Uh, um, Clint has already taken us there. Jesus says, and the New Testament says, we can actually bring about the return of Christ more quickly. And it's not by reading our newspapers to see if the signs are coming. It's by being obedient to the Word. That's why I say we shouldn't be busy reading our newspapers. We should be busy reading the Word. And as we're obedient to it, Christ's coming will be speeded up uh, in light of that as well. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.